I'm Viren Garrihy, and you're listening to The Laughs of Your Life, the podcast where I talk to influential people about laughter. From their first memories of laughter, to feeling laughed at, to if laughter wasn't the best medicine, what would be? Well, you can't beat a glass of wine. Oh, amazing! <laughs> Thank God, I thought you were going to say some sort of chemical and I'd be like, ah, oh, No, please. And, and this is very interesting, you know. Now, it's dangerous. We don't want to promote no. uh, excessiveness. But sure, we're, not, no, we're not saying excess. Uh, scientifically proven, by the way, and this is true, a massive, what's called a meta-analysis, which means lots of clinical trials combined into one. The healthiest people in this group were the ones who had a little glass of wine occasionally. The least healthy were the teetotalers and the big drinkers, obviously. Now, the big question is, why is that? Yeah. The reason is, it's not just the alcohol. Which the Alcohol, in moderation, does have beneficial effects. Stop. Um, it does. Tell yeah, me yeah, more. Yeah. Rockstar professor Luke O'Neill is my guest this week. He talks to me about his undying love for his hometown Bray, his appreciation for healthy competition in the world of science, and how having the crack with friends could cure almost anything. This week's episode is brought to you by Science Week 2020, which is running from November 8th to 15th, with hundreds of virtual events taking place online. You can check them out at sfi.ie forward slash events. Science Week wants to help the general public understand what the future could look like because of the decisions we're making or we're not making and to highlight the role of science in delivering solutions that support our future environment and health and quality of life. Science is the solution to a shared, better future. And for Science Week 2020, we're asking people to hashtag believe in science and play a role in choosing our future. I hope you enjoy the episode. Professor Luke O'Neill, you are extremely welcome to the laughs of your life. Thank you very much. <laughs> very happy to be here. It's great. <laughs> we were having a chat there. So we, we walk up four flights of stairs as we, uh, to the studio. Shane's laughing. He's like, yeah. sorry about that. It's murder. <laughs> <laughs> it's murder. It's good for the L cardio, though. But we were talking about just how busy you are at the moment. Yes. Well, it's a funny time, isn't it? We're in the middle of this, this dreaded pandemic. And I work on it as well as a scientist. And yeah. then I've got also my communications stuff as well on top of that, yeah. which I was doing anyway. Yeah. For years, really. Yeah. You know, but that's ramped up hugely. So that's my second job at the moment. So it's all happening. How is your work going? How are you finding it? Very good. Well, we're lucky in a way, because we could open our lab because it's essential I guess, in a yes. way. So back in April, my lab reopened and my team could come in then, you see. And they're all in there now. As we speak, I've just left them this morning, actually. I have 15 people, you see, doing research. And we work on inflammation in the broadest sense and inflammatory diseases. Mm -hmm. But COVID-19 is an inflammatory condition of your lungs. So I got five of them to switch into COVID. So it's very exciting. And they love it because they're young people, you know. Yes. And now they're all working on COVID together. So it's super very and exciting. Is, is there a kind of a collective... Um, buzz around any day now we could make some kind of a great breakthrough every re every result counts yes it's, 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 it, the stakes are high now i'd worked on things like sepsis before and a sepsis happens if you've got bacteria in your body yeah that really irritates your body in various ways so a, a long time working on this but now good god you know you can't avoid covid can you no. and, and they love it because you know they're young and one of them said to me last week oh me mammy said great you're working on covid 19 so it's a thrill for them isn't ah, it to be doing stuff and we get, we're getting some good results i mean every day now i'm waiting for results to come in yeah. so we've got, we got a big collaboration with science scientists in Holland and Belgium. We got a result last week from the Belgians and it looks great. Great. <laughs> now, if you're a scientist, you go, I don't believe that. 
you got to repeat it. <laughs> you can do it again. Of course. You know? And I emailed the guy last night, actually, and I said to him, what do you think? Oh, no, he says, there's something going on here. <laughs> so fantastic. It's that kind of thing. And the trouble is, in science, things can fall over. Yeah. You go down the wrong road. The idea is stupid. All that stuff is right. in your mind. Second, it's very competitive. There's other people out there doing yeah. the same thing as you. So, And there's no prizes for coming second in science. You, you can't discover gravity twice, you know, shall <laughs> yes. we say. So, that's very true. <laughs> as a broad example. But, you know, so, so you're on edge a little bit. But that's part of the game. It's, it's a great thing being a scientist, you see. It's full of excitement. Well, you mentioned the competitiveness. Is, like, is that race, it's a good thing? It, it can be good and bad. Uh, it's bad if you come second because like you wasted three years work kind of and you get you, you do get some publication out of it. But it's not going to be in Time magazine. It's going to be in the Bray people or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> no shade to the Bray no, people. I'm, not, I'm from Bray. I, I, if I have picked it, I don't know. But you know what I mean, though? I, I love Bray people. Fantastic news. But you'd rather be in Time, wouldn't you? Of course, um, of course. So it's terrible because you've done the same bloody work as the other guy. And, and, and that can, that's happened to me maybe twice. Yeah. Uh, we call this being scooped. Just like in journalism. Right. So it's tricky. Now, what's happened with COVID is actually very interesting. A lot more collaboration. Okay. Because we kind of know, let's row in together. We're literally all in this together. We've got yeah. this together. And yeah. then the guys in Holland are experts on SARS, which is a related virus. Yeah. And they're very keen now to help us. And then the guys in Belgium have models of SARS-CoV-2. It's in animals. They use hamsters. Actually, it sounds a bit strange. But you can recreate the disease in hamsters just like humans. Right. And of course, you can't go to humans first because it could be too dangerous. And our drug works in hamsters. That, that's the good news. At least the first experiments are working. Right, okay. So it was great because I could bring my ideas and then get the Belgians to use their technology to, to move it forward. And, and I love that collaboration. In fact, it's a, it's a great joy as a scientist to collaborate anyway. Yeah. But I've never seen the like of the collaborative effort around this one for obvious reasons, I guess, you know. It's for the history books in every way. Okay. Can I just call you Luke? You can, of course. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Although people are now calling me Professor Luke, which unnerves me. Why? <laughs> Professor Luke. It's like, you know, a, a children's science show presenter. No, I'm only kidding. Um, it's just a bit unusual. You know? Yeah, right. Okay. Takes I never see myself to... as Professor Luke. That's strange. <laughs> okay, right. We'll just stick with Luke. That's great. Luke, your first memory of laughter. Of laughter? Yeah. You mean the very first time I laughed? There, or, or, um, your first memory of it, whatever form good, that takes. Good Lord. I'll tell you, I remember vividly. Go on. So I was in my grandmother's garden. And I was four years of age and I just remember chuckling away. <laughs> I don't know what it was. She had a beautiful garden and, and she actually, she, she died when I was five. So but that's why it sticks in my mind in a way. And she was dropping a feather in front of me, you see. And I, I see the feather float down to the ground and I, and we started laughing. <laughs> Isn't it great? So there you have it. And, and it is my first memory overall as well, remember, because right. I remember we were in the garden and she was famous for her geraniums me granny this is true and I remember the vivid smell of the damn geranium and then for, for years after and it still is the case if I smell geraniums I think of her isn't that nice lovely <laughs> but there you have it that, that probably the first one where was that that was in Bray where I'm from Bray okay. County Wicklow yeah she was living around the corner from us I lived on a place called Dunkirk Avenue and she lived on the Seapoint Road and you know we, basically her son moved close to his mother in a way my ah, father yeah. you know for the dinners so, for, almost for the dinners right yeah. so gotcha. they, lived, they lived close to each other so it was easy tell me about your childhood tell me about um, growing up yes well Bray let's mention Bray there's a great place to grow up I've got very fond memories of Bray. I lived on this street uh, called Duncan Avenue and it was like Coronation Street, actually. Right. It was two rows of houses and every house had 10 children back in those days yes, or whatever. Gotcha. Not quite. But, and there were loads of my age boys. We play football on the road. Vividly, every day we were kicking a football around. And then there was the seafront which is superb in Bray. Be down there a lot, you know, yeah. up Bray Head. Uh, and then I joined uh, the Sea Scouts in Bray. Okay. 
and then began to love the sea, which I still do, from the age of about 11. So my memories of, of, of Bray are about going out in boats, basically, a lot as well. So it was a great place to grow up, you know. Siblings? One sister, yes, who's eight years older than me. Right. So there's a bit of an age gap. And, and she left home when I was like maybe 10. So um, I was kind of a semi-only child as well. Spoiled. She, spoiled rotten, right. precisely. Yeah, she was always a bit, uh, so what's the word? I wouldn't like sibling rivalry. Let's call it that. R- really? Well, I arrived and I was, and she was eight. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm, I'm the son. You know? Yeah, <laughs> so, of course. <laughs> my mother. It, yeah. it's, it's like Jesus Christ, they've been born in a stable kind of thing. You know? so, that's my sister's version. Um, so we often get little digs at each other because of this but she was a, is an amazing woman so my sister um went to the philippines uh, right. volunteered as a teacher overseas when i was like maybe 10 or 11 okay and spent three years in the philippines as a teacher you know teaching girls actually young girls and then came back to london and then did social work and she was a social worker all psychiatric social very tough right so when i went to live in london for my phd we moved in together which oh, is great lovely. you know because obviously she'd come home and stuff and i used to yeah. visit her but now we, we shared a flat for about a year together which was great we get to get to know each other a bit you know so uh, it was a good, a good uh, development in our relationship, I guess. Yeah, 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 later in life. Okay, Luke, the first time you felt laughed at? Laughed at? Oh, well, that's very common if you're, uh, if you're an academic. <laughs> you <know>? Really? <laughs> well, you can't beat students poking fun at you, you see. They, they, okay. they, they laugh away at you, you know, if you, any chance they get. They laugh at you. <laughs> That's probably the thing. Right. Okay. <laughs> I'd say I can. I can imagine you. Yeah. I'd say. Now, yeah. Now that you say it, yeah. I'm sorry to say it, Luke, but I'd say people do giggle at you. They did giggle. Yeah, well, yeah. you see, it's a very interesting group. <laughs> I, I lecture the first year students in Trinity. I give them their first five lectures. Right. They're sitting there, very anxious, eighteen-year-olds. You know? Yeah. So I always use the F word during a lecture. Nice. <laughs> to make it this isn't school. Okay, that's the idea, you know? Right. <laughs> but sometimes the jokes backfire and you get laughed at. That, that, that's, that's, that's my main memory of being laughed at is, is students. And I don't mind. It's great. Bring it on kind of thing. You and know? do you throw in the F word to, to loosen things up and let them know like we're all adults here and that's it's right. all good? That first lecture is so important to them because yeah. you're saying, look, you're no longer in school. This isn't the leave insert. Yeah. In fact, the first thing I say is you don't need to be here. You can F off if you like. You know? Right. It's up to you. You're now now. You know. Yeah. You can you can get the notes off someone else. It's up to you to engage now with the subject and take it as far as you want yourself. That kind of thing. You yeah. See? And 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 they like people remember that first lecture. That I'll bump into people years later. Yeah. I remember that first lecture. It was very vivid. So it's a bit, it's a bit of a performance, remember, as well. So, yes, exactly. Now, there are 250 of them. Yeah. You try and keep, as you know yourself, keep an audience. Uh, oh, God, scary. And these are all 18 years of age in they're, university uh, and for the first time. They're the, that's a very, it's a tough age. It is a tough age, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, recently enough, I did a talk in a secondary school. And, like, I've done a lot of stuff in front of, as you say, it's crowds or whatever. Yeah. And it's that 17, 18 year old age that are, it's so daunting. It's daunting. Because yeah. you you don't know whether to act total adult and and uh, not be on their level or to try and be cool and seem like you're on their level. Because either way, they're kind of just blankly looking and, yeah. and being like, impress me. Well, it's, well, it, this is interesting because it's, it's quiet, actually, because they, they, they don't, know, no, don't know each other. It's their first week in college. Yes. So that's good. Y- yeah. There isn't much noise. Yeah. It builds up as the lectures go on, as they meet each other, I suppose, and so on. So that's quite good, I suppose. Yeah. And they're waiting for a pin to drop in a way. So you've got their attention. So it's probably an easy yes. enough gig to do. Yeah. And what I've learned is exactly as you say, just be yourself because yeah. they'll see through you. you know? Totally. <laughs> They're very good at dissecting us psychologically, totally. you see. So I try to yeah. just be myself and then fill in the gap that. for me. OK, so so you finish secondary school. Yeah. You go to 
Trinity, yes. actually. Yeah. And then on to London. That's right. Okay, and exactly. then and then you come back to Ireland when? Went to Cambridge next. So the, the normal route for a scientist is you, you do your first degree in some scientific discipline. Yeah. Uh, mine was biochemistry. And then I went to London to do a PhD because that's your training now to be at the, your doctorate. Yes. And that was in, I think, called pharmacology, which is the science of medicines. Mm-hmm. And I worked on the immune system, became an immunologist then, actually, because I'm working on the immune system. Then the normal thing is you do a post, what's called a postdoc next. That's your first job. Right. As a fully fledged card carrying scientist. And mm-hmm. I did my postdoc in Cambridge. So then I spent three years in Cambridge, which was fantastic, obviously, as a university. Yeah. And then you look for a job, like, like most careers, I suppose. And people these days, though, it's changed. Uh, they, they often do two or three postdocs, not enough jobs. Yeah. And you're on a contract then. It is the gig economy in a way. You might get a three year contract. They can go anywhere in the world if you're a scientist and go to Harvard or Australia and do another three years. Some people are postdocs forever. They quite like that yeah. <laughs> lifestyle, you yeah. know. But eventually you say, I've got to get a job. So. Yeah. So I applied for jobs and I applied in Queens in Belfast. I applied in the University of Southampton and I applied in Dublin Trinity. And guess which one I got? Trainers. And it didn't have to be the case. And I, I, in fact, I didn't think I'd come back in a way. Really? I, I want to go to America, in fact, you see. So I was going to go to America next. Next thing I'm up for this job. What am I going to do now? You know, will I take the job or not? Yeah. And well, it's, it's a gift horse thing. So I took the job and I, I thought I'd come back for two or three years, to be honest. And my boss in Cambridge was a very eminent rheumatologist, actually, because I was working on arthritis at this stage. Mm-hmm. He said, you're a bloody idiot going there. He says, why? It's a backwater. He said, and it was actually. Ireland at that time wasn't great scientifically. We're talking like the early 90s. Right. He said, it's a backwater. You need to go to the best places in the world. It's like you're a footballer, is the analogy yes. I use. Yes, OK. Like, do you want to play for Inter Milan or Bray Wanderers to dig into Bray again? <laughs> Sorry, Bray. Sorry, Bray. really twisted um, the knife now geez, in Bray. I apologise. Bray Wanderers, great football team. And in fact, the Carlisle grounds at the bottom of our road and I love Bray Waters um, <laughs> you know what I mean he said you've got the talent you, you should be yeah. you should be going in to go to Harvard or Yale or whatever it might be so he raised you he big did. time and, and then he says to me um, now by the way I understand that you want to go back to your home country yeah. and he said I'll always have a job for you here he gave me a safety net isn't nice. that great and so I knew if, if it wasn't good here I could always go back to Cambridge and that was quite nice yeah. the second thing though was I was determined to Sorry, prove I'm him wrong. Of, I'm just thinking of your mother now. Like, she thinks you're Jesus Christ the saviour when you're born. Imagine what she was like there. You're like, well, oh yeah, no, I have Cambridge to fall back well, on. Well, well that's it. The safety net was always there. <laughs> but, but he says to me then, I, I said to look, I'm going to defy this guy. It kind of gave me an extra Philip, if you will. I'll prove him wrong. So, right. so there was kind kind of a motivation to yeah. try to do well here. You see, it was a bit of a re- reverse psychology, I suppose. Well, he was a bit like a father figure to me, this guy, yeah. right? And, and I, he may have been doing it to do that to me. You know, mm. dads can be. Yeah. sort of clever in that way yes, you know yeah. and maybe he's putting it up to me to say well you get on with it now and see how you get on kind of thing so so maybe there was method in his his, yeah. his, his, his criticism although I suspect not I think he didn't he, he didn't write Trinity at all right see, so okay okay these and Cambridge types you know they're like right that. Yeah. interesting how many years then has it been have you been in Trinity that was 1992 I came back you see so it's been a long old stretch since then wow. now the beauty of it is doing you can do sabbaticals yeah and I've done maybe three in that time. You go away for a year. It's fantastic. Bad. And that rejuvenates you and you do better science and you collaborate again, you know. And I did a great one in Boston, for example, in 1999, soon, you know, maybe six years after I was back. And then one in Australia, you know, isn't it brilliant? Yeah. I did a mini one, actually, towards the end of last year in Stanford, where right. I wrote the book, you yes. see, partly. So, yes. uh, so the great thing about an academic is you can do sabbaticals and get away if you get a bit sort of bored yeah. or whatever it might be okay. you see so, so even though I was here all that time I did a lot of travelling you know I don't mean to make you feel old but you started in Trinity the year I was born now there you <laughs> have. Uh, 
There, you. Thanks very much. <laughs> Twenty-eight yeah. years. The Botox is going great for you. Can I say that? Look. I know. Oh my God! I've no Botox. I swear. Look, I can move my forehead. Look at that. Look at that. Yes. that frozen grin. You see, it's a, it's a giveaway. Oh, Luke. Okay, very good. Okay, the moment when Luke, if you didn't laugh, you'd cry. Oh, the moment when I didn't laugh, I would cry. That's a great one. Well, do you know I'm going to give you a good one there? I've thought about this already. Yeah. My favourite movie of all time is With Nail and I. Have you ever seen that movie? No. It was like Richard E. Grant is the lead actor in it. And it was made in the mid-80s when I was in London, actually. And I went to see it. It's set in London. It's about two out-of-work actors mm-hmm. who basically spend the weekend getting drunk. Now, it's a cult movie, right? Right. And uh, all, all the, I'm amazed you haven't heard about it with your encyclopedic knowledge of, of movies. <laughs> I don't have that. Um, <laughs> And, and it's a brilliant movie, but good God, it's, it's, it's a comedy. But you will cry as well. It, it's sort of the scenes in it that, that right. make you go, oh, good Lord, I could go either way with this, you see. Okay. So, for example, they, at the very end of the movie, they, they, sep- they, they part. It's a movie about friendship, really. They're, they're two actors. Right. One of them gets a, an acting job up in Manchester, and he leaves London and leaves with Nail. And the closing scene is him walking through a park in the rain. And it's still funny, but still there's a real sort of Sadness. edge to it. Kind of, a, yeah, it's a dreaded word, bittersweet, I suppose. So, I like that. You and, you? and I watched it again last week with my son, strangely, because he'd never seen it. Now, he's 20 and he, he quite liked it. You know, it's a bit dated, maybe. <laughs> and and I, I felt tears well up towards the end. Whereas the first time I would have seen it, I would have laughed at right. that scene. Isn't it funny? Yes, that's that yeah. kind of mix, isn't it? Yeah. Of the two emotions, I suppose. Life experiences. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, your son, has he followed in your, so- in your footsteps? He has a bit. He's doing science in Trinity, actually. Yes. Are you lecturing him? Not, no, he's not doing biology, thankfully. Okay. <laughs> he's, doing, <laughs> he's doing more chemistry. Okay. Na- nanoscience, they call it. So he's, he's, he's now in third year. And loving it. See, he's loving it. Yeah, but he's stuck because he's remote teaching now. It's not the best. Yeah. As we were just discussing earlier. So it's hard for that whole generation, I think. It's really tough for them, isn't it? So we were saying that. That I recently was thinking about, I just, you know, whatever about second and third years. Yes, of course, it's tough. But first years. Like if you've done six years of secondary school and maybe didn't have a great time or you were just so excited for a new chapter, new friends, it's very difficult. It is difficult, yeah. Have you found that from talking to them? Well, how do they motivate themselves in a way? Mm. I think the big thing for me is it's part of the developmental process, actually. Yeah. So when you're 18... You're trying to make friends, get your identity established, have your peer group around you, maybe meet a partner eventually. There's all that stuff's going on biologically. As a biologist, you see. Right. It's no different from when you're like a baby and then you become a child and then an adolescent and then you're becoming an adult. It's a very important developmental process. It's almost hardwired. Yeah. So denying that generation stuff is like stopping salmon swimming back upstream, you see. It's, 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 it's as big as that. Now, they're trying to obviously help them and we, we try to help them. Too. We do have a certain amount of face-to-face. That's important. But they can't meet and go for a drink, can they? Or they can't go to their sports clubs or all oh, that's gone for them now. And so how do you feel when, when say, in the media, the young, the young people or the youngsters are being berated for, for doing stuff that they, they shouldn't? They shouldn't be berating them because oh. it's the most natural thing in the world, you see. Now, now it's tricky, obviously, because you can't have too much looseness, no. shall we call it. But cut them slack for that. Cut that generation slack because yeah. they're having a hard time. Yeah. And the worry I have, Jen, is the mental health issues in the longer run. This yeah. will come back to haunt us probably in five, ten years' time. You never know, you know. So we've got to be aware of this and try to come up with ways to help them. And in Trinity, we're trying to get them. I mean, the final year class, they do a 12-week research project as part of their degree. Mm. That's now four weeks, but it's something. So they come into us for four weeks now instead of 12. And at right. least that's an attempt, you know, to try to, try to mind them, I suppose, is the word you might use. Talk to me about the mental health thing for every generation. Like, do you think, I think everyone is kind of, it's great that people are aware and they're kind of trying to chip away at, you know, being active and eating well and making sure you're, you know, chatting to people, whether it's on social media or whatever. Long term, do you think it's going to have a big... It has to. 
because yeah. there'll be vulnerable people you see anyway before the pandemic began mm. those vulnerable people are now in a more stressful situation and you don't need to be a psychologist to figure that that will have negative effects but remember we are very resilient as a species mm. never forget that either and we have survived horrible things you know and the main reason we survive is as a community and it's the usual things we help each other and, and maybe good things comes out of this if we all are aware of each other's needs i suppose and you never know there yeah. could be benefits as well but it has to be uppermost in every government's mind this risk to the health of the population both physical and mental you see so it's a big 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 issue really okay luke your no laughing matter moment in life the moment where there was just no room for laughter well, there was no room for laughter. Oh, that's a serious question. Dear. That is. We have to get serious. <laughs> oh, we do. Um, well, I have a, in the book, actually, I talk about an incident, you see, which I think is probably worth, worth talking about. There's a chapter on depression. And the book has uh, big issues like that. And, I, and they interest me, these issues, by the way. I'm fascinated by them. Right. And I know loads of psychiatrists, strange as it may seem, and I know the science behind depression. But each chapter has a little personal story in the front. And when I was about 33, I think I was, my first son was born. Mm-hmm. And that's a pressure on any parent, as you know. God, good God, I've got this small Human. creature now to mind. Right? Yeah. And then secondly, I had a health scare. Now, it turned out to be minor in the end, but there was about a three-month period when they weren't quite sure what it was, and I was worried about that. And then I went into a kind of a, a slump, you know? Mm. And it developed, it wasn't, it wasn't serious depression, but I definitely had a depressive episode. Mm. And that was tough, because I'd never had that before, you know? And it was the, all the symptoms were there in a way. You know, I wasn't able to sleep, or I would wake early. And I knew, you know, the six criteria. Yeah. If you have them for more than three weeks, go and see someone and that's what I did what are they what are the six well, well the big ones are if you can't sleep is a big one or mm-hmm. you sleep too much Dis- disturb sleep right mm. that also includes waking early that's a real marker now if you wake at four in the morning that's a bad very bad sign is what one of the boxes you tick is that one right mm. the second one is obvious in a sense it's sort of not so much that you're feeling down it's just joylessness is what they call it so in other words things that gave you pleasure in the past no longer do and it's not so much you feel depressed it's more like you feel nothing it's this numbness numbness yeah and i noticed that i said like a tv show i just couldn't be bothered watching it mm. or if i watched it it would annoy me and it wasn't getting any pleasure out of it so, so the lack of pleasure in things is a big one as well obviously the third one would be like if you're if your diet if your um, appetite is disturbed is a big one as well right and then a kind of a sense of hopelessness in other words i can't get out of this i can't see a way out the other end of it there's about seven of them in total actually okay and if you have like i think five of them for three weeks now we all feel these things every day kind of you know yeah. not every day but you know all these things are you're a human being you're going to suffer from these things but if it persists then there's something gone wrong in your brain right. and then and then i went to see my gp and, and a bit of meds was good and then a bit of talking was good as well and i came out of it after about three or four months so i decided now never to stop working so it wasn't that serious right like depression can be extremely serious as well. now it wasn't a joy ride by any means but it wasn't as bad as the severe end of it but still it was bad enough and then I, and my main thing was I can't be like this with my new son because yeah. my job is to be a dad yeah. you know and I said I've got to do something that motivated me see men don't get help do I, you know? Know, I, know, I know I think the fact that I had a child provoked me to go really? to the doctor I might, mightn't have gone otherwise you know so but then I began to come out of it and then it was amazing I mean I'll never forget the moment I can vividly, I've talked about the book. I went, we went for a way for a weekend to Malaga with the mother-in-law, who I'm very fond of, by the way. Um, in case you're wondering. <laughs> Sound like uh, it there. <laughs> and I was sitting with her on the, the Ziri. Let's give her a shout out. She's 90 years of age now. Ah. So we're sitting on a balcony uh, looking at the sea and I suddenly noticed the sunlight sparkling. I said, that's very nice. <laughs> 
And it was like a rush of something. I said, now, this is great. Right. I can see something. As far as before, that would have been yeah. nothing. You know, but nothing, joy nothing. in the mundane. In the absence, just regular things. Yeah. So, I'm, I'm coming out of this now. I can, I can date the, the turning of the corner to that moment in a way. Amazing. You know? So that was a grim time, I'll tell you that much. Because right. I just, yeah, there was three months of it there in the winter, you know, and I'm oh, going, God, this easy. is tough. So there'd be one of them, I suppose. I'm always interested to know with depression, I've never actually asked the question. So now that I have you, do you mind if I ask you? Absolutely. So, like, what is the difference between, say, situational, this is the, just the terminology I'm coming yeah. up with on the spot, and I suppose clinical or chemical. Yeah. So say, obviously, if something horrendous happens in your life and it triggers it. Yeah. Or if just nothing really bad happens. That's the happens strange thing. Ha- they're, so they're both the same in yeah. terms of symptomology. There's yeah. no difference between them. You know, people yeah. can just become depressed for no obvious stressor, right? And that's so um, important to remember. That's because really important. Yeah, the, the main stigma yeah. is... Yeah. Sure, you have nothing to be worried about. Yeah, yeah exactly. Everything's going great for you. Yeah, precisely. You know? and, and I was just... probably bumping in and out of that yeah. all my life anyway. Yeah. You know, you'd have three or four days of misery and then, you know, and then, but then it became chronic, you know. Yeah. Now, the question is, why does it become chronic? And it must be because you're over ruminating and you're thinking too much and those thoughts get too intense in a way. And my thoughts were kind of about my son and my illness and that kind of thing. Yeah. You know? But there was a background uh, vague sense of unease as GPs. Do you know this? You know, yes. People go and see their GP and they write down vague sense of unease. <laughs> What's wrong with them? So we all have that to some extent, you see. Yeah, okay. But it just becomes chronic. And a great name for it is a malignant sadness, it's called sometimes. It's called Lewis Walford wrote a great book if you want to, people to read this yeah. about depression. And right. I know him. He was a famous biologist, actually. He passed okay. away. But it's like malignant sadness now. So, But it's a mystery, to be honest. I mean, I mean, yeah. why would it suddenly trigger that? Even, even an incident. And many people. And Walpert himself said something he had it with no reason right it just came on him yeah and he was about to go and give a lecture tour in south africa and he couldn't go and he had to stay home and he became he was very severe became suicidal and his wife figured it was because his dad was from south africa and his dad had committed suicide and that was preying on his mind and he wasn't really aware of it so there's often something in the background like that yeah now then his wife passed away about six years later he he didn't go into a depression so it can't just be like an adverse event and obviously he was down and bereaving of course it didn't turn into malignant sadness so it's a very it's a bit mysterious nobody really knows but either way it is a chemical oh absolutely yeah. I, there's no question it's, it, the point in that chapter says something very uh, now it was quite, quite personal to write about this by the way yeah and, and I, I gave a, my couple of my friends like can you read that for me is it, is it a bit self-serving or a bit, oh no that's brilliant you yeah. need that in honesty because the message is everybody is susceptible doesn't matter what you do and in fact if you're successful it can make things worse strange paradoxically many successful people become depressed isn't that strange which you see like yeah Hollywood is like exactly yeah, yeah. And, and the big question is why is that uh, they think it's partly the imposter syndrome yeah kind of thing you know and no one's um, built no one is built to deal with fame like, no there's no handbook to fame well, fame is interesting because I think it's to do with existential despair in a way. Now, this is what the opinion would be. In other yeah. words, what, where does life have meaning? Yes. If you're striving for something and you achieve it and it's not quite what you expected or it's not quite the thing you want. It's not the high you thought you'd you have. You suddenly become existentially challenged. <laughs> yeah. And that can pivot into depression, you see. So it's a strange one in a way. And then the point in that chapter is very simple. Very common go and get help because it's like spraining your ankle or what, there's no shame in this. And in, in fact, if anything, I would wear it as a badge of honor if you've been through this because it shows you're a human being. 
Totally, right? totally. You're a member of the human race. Yeah. And it gives you empathy for others. Yeah. So then what happened to me next to us, I would see students with depression. I was a tutor at the time in Trinity. And mm. as you may remember, we all have these tutees. Yeah, I had one, yeah, yeah. And I had 120 of them. Right. And th- they often come with anxiety, remember. Back, it's worse than ever now, by the way. This is back in the 90s. This is, you know. And then I was able to help them. I really felt it was, it was gave me a perspective on them. Really? So there's, there's a good thing. The good things can come out of this in a way. Now, it's horrendous. I'm not trying to wish it on anybody. No. But, but empathy is... Uh, that's the key thing. Yeah. Mm. So, so there's always a kind of a slightly beneficial. It's obviously an evolved thing. Again, if you're a biologist, <laughs> you wonder why do people get depressed? Yeah. It's a, I bet it's an evolved thing because it gives you a sense of perspective, maybe, and and it's, it could be a survival instinct eventually. Really? That okay. kind of thing, you know. But now, obviously, if it becomes severe, that wouldn't be great. No. But but it's part of who we are. It's part of us as a species. Is the kind of bottom bottom line on this, really? Okay, Luke. Uh, the person you always laugh with. With. Oh, I love the word with. Rather well, than that. Uh, rather than that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, my favourite thing, that's probably overstating it. One <laughs> of my most favourite things is going for a pint or two with a bunch of pals and you just get the crack going. <laughs> it's oh, the best don't, don't we miss it. it so much? And what I love about being Irish most of all, and I travel the world, or I used to anyway, is the slagging and, and taking the piss out of each other yeah. and then we all laugh together. That, yeah. that moment, a good dig. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's done in a nice way, not in a nasty way. <laughs> no, when it comes to you. And, and me, me and my mates, uh, now the latest incarnation is, is my band, The Metabolics. That is 24-7 slagging. Is it? Oh, God, it's brilliant. Yes. And the well-placed slag, we all fall about the place together, you know. <laughs> so laughter, actually, probably the function of laughter is partly to be a socially bonding experience among us, you see. So. Do you miss the bit of gigging? I do. Yeah, yeah, that's another tough one. Now, mind you, these are first of world problems to some extent. But uh, now that was a great joy. Yes. Yeah. And we used to do one a month kind of thing. Yeah. And we had a residency in a pub and dockey and everything. So. Although last week we, we recorded four songs. Oh, we come on. This. Tell us more. So Brezzy, who you know, Brezzy, yeah. and, and he did a podcast uh, yeah. about the book and, and he said, bring the band with you. And we record in his studio. Uh, Camden. Camden. Yeah, we Amazing. We four songs and that was fantastic fun. <gasps> now he's going to put them on the end of the podcast, which is good. Now we're amateurs, I hasten to add. <laughs> Although we have two, two semi, we have two professionals. It has to be said, our lead guitarist is brilliant. Yeah. And the bass player, Paul Feary and Chris Cole. And they were fantastic. They lift us. So now that Brezzy likes them and we may release them. Uh, for charity, wouldn't that be great for his 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 charity? Amazing. Thing? Maybe. No, they don't sound fantastic, <laughs> but, um, but you never know. Do people giggle at the like rock and roll scientist kind of thing you have going on? They do. Yeah. They, 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 that's another source of slagging, <laughs> which is great. I don't mind that. You don't rock. mind it. If I see the phrase "rock star professor" one more time, <laughs> yeah, I, won't, I promise fit, I won't do that. To be tied. Oh, I don't mind. I think f- people. It, it's a good thing to talk about because people don't expect it. Kind yeah. of. But you've got to remember, there are many scientists are musicians. Really? It goes, it goes with the territory. And, and whenever I go to conferences, we often get the guitars out and have a session or play at, at the dinner and stuff. Yeah, so Stop. many of my scientific friends are musicians. So it's not unusual, actually. Do you know what? To it call just... Tom Jones to be a scientist. <laughs> I love it. I love We're on it. fire today. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's, strangely, it's not unusual. And, 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 we, and often at a conference, there's a dinner at the end of the conference, like a, like a bit like, you know, a function. To, yeah. uh, and a band gets up and played. And it could be a local band they book to do a gig. Yeah. But often we get up and we play, you know, and then and just jam basically so it's not that unusual to have scientists as musicians yeah it's crazy amazing okay Luke a time where you had the last laugh oh the last laugh now the- <laughs> that's, that's that's a tricky one when did I have the last laugh well that's a scientific thing oh what do you are you mean? ready wait 
So uh, there's great rivalry between scientists, you right. see. Now, it can be good, and it, sometimes it's going to be nasty. They're, they're human beings. So if I go to a conference and I give a talk, I'm fully expecting three or four people to get the microphone and dig into me for the science. And that's the way it should be. Right. Science is meant to be combative, actually. Mm. Sounds a bit strange, because it's all about getting to the truth. Of course. And if I've got a scientific discovery, and some other scientist doesn't agree with it and has different data to me and all that, they, they absolutely should tell me, and then we... We, we duke it out, Hash it out. Yeah, and then, then you get to the truth that's part of the process but sometimes it gets very nasty and they get a bit bitter and twisted and right. I won't name this scientist but uh, they go on. decided to get a <laughs> dig into my lab and one nasty thing happened one of my students gave a talk at a conference and I wasn't at the conference this guy got up next and he was a senior guy mm. and he really picked at her and he said that talk was no good and he was harshly critical of her really nasty now backfired on him because people in the audience there's a bully you know and he did it now, you get scientists like that some, like every other human yeah. every industry there's people like that yeah. but you don't need to be nasty you know right. so about three months later I was at a conference and I could give a talk that countered some of the stuff he had so, <laughs> amazing and I got up and I gave he was there and I showed our data and I said now I won't be quite as personal as he was the last time I'm just showing you my data you know? love it and then someone got up to the microphone and said uh, that was a great talk look fantastic well done <laughs> love it <laughs> Now, now, it might not have been that good a talk, but that was a mate of mine. <laughs> so, so, now, that, that, that combat is still going on. This guy is still digging. Oh, it's still? Oh, okay. Yeah, it's still burning away in the background. But, right. Um, I felt that was a good one, last laugh, because defending my student. Because yeah. that was an awful thing to do. They all said if I'd been there, he wouldn't have done it. Yeah, right. And I, do you think and, the and female the, thing was part of it? Absolutely. Yeah. And he was seen as a real bully there towards yeah. a young female scientist. It mm. went very badly for them, you know. Really? Well, in the, in, in, in the room, they were all yeah. going, that was inappropriate. Okay. And, and then she was so, um, she was very upset. And she, she didn't have the experience to get up to the mic and counter him. Yeah. Because there's any guts to do that. Whereas if I'd been there, I'd be up immediately. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. And, the, and they said, you weren't there. That's why he did it. He's a bloody coward. You know, so that was part right. of the of the dialogue I suppose love so, it so you had her back I did indeed and, and, and remember science can be like that as well it's not, it's not pure than pure as a pursuit <laughs> <laughs> okay Luke finally well not finally actually we have a quick fire round as well if laughter wasn't the best medicine oh I love that I love that do you like that yeah laughter wasn't the best medicine <laughs> what would be <laughs> terrible joke if laughter wasn't the best medicine what would be well you can't beat a glass of wine oh amazing <laughs> Thank God. I thought you were going to say some sort of chemical and I'd be like, ah, no, please. And, and this is very interesting, you know. Now, it's dangerous. We don't want to promote no. uh, excessiveness. But you're not, no, we're not saying excess. Uh, scientifically proven, by the way, and this is true, a massive, what's called a meta-analysis, which means lots of clinical trials combined into one. The healthiest people in this group were the ones who had a little glass of wine occasionally. The least healthy were the teetotalers and the big drinkers, obviously. Now, the big question is, why is that? Yeah. The reason is, it's not just the alcohol. Which Alcohol, in moderation, does have beneficial effects. Stop. Um, it does. Tell yeah, me yeah, more. Yeah, yeah. It, well, well, it's got various <laughs> beneficial effects to do with your immune system, even. Right. Now, it's mainly to do with social activity, it turns out. Because if you meet your friend for a drink, it relaxes you a little bit. Because drink, we know how it works, by the way. It suppresses the thing called glutamate in your brain and boosts the thing called GABA. So we know the chemistry of alcohol in Go your on. brain yeah. and relaxes you. Okay. And then you've got a 
little bit of social activity and you, 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 can, you can bond with your, your pal more, I suppose. And we seem to need it as a species. So can you imagine having a, a function where no wine is served? It'd be over in 10 minutes and nobody would, you know. N- networking is all about getting to know people and yeah. that's why they serve a little bit of alcohol, these things, because it loosens people up slightly because we're all a bit anxious, you know, kind of socially. We're all nervous. So I think, yeah, a little bit of alcohol I would advocate, except if you're at risk of, of yes. various things. And all, everything in moderation, of course. Of so, course. So there you have it. If, if it wasn't laughter, I'd say. And they often go together anyway. Absolutely. Would you be a red or a white drinker? Red, I think. Yes. Yeah. It's a bit more robust, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Although one of, my, one of my favorite things, and we're all like this, a nice meal with a nice glass of wine. There is a fantastic pleasure. And it's, it goes back to the Stone Age in a way that we're all around the campfire chewing on a piece of bison and having a chat. You know, it yeah. seems to be built into our, our, our behavior going back tens of thousands of years, you see. So. Why, while I have you, what would be your death row meal? My death row starter meal. Starter main dessert. My death row meal would have to be, uh, the starter would probably be chicken wings, you know. That's, oh, divine. <laughs> Why are you laughing? That's a serious topic. It sounds unhealthy. <laughs> uh, the main course would have to be a nice steak. Oh. You know. With what laying on the side? Chips. Oh, <laughs> divine. A nice onion and a nice pepper sauce. Fab. See, and, then, and a great Irish beef. You can't beat it, you know. Yeah. Bottle of red. D- a bottle of red. The best red to go with the steak we're allowed the bottle for death row indeed we are are. there's no health consequences I have have three bottles then back to back Uh, and then the dessert well now what would that be that would have to be a nice bit of traditional apple pie you know steaming hot with cream okay Keep it, keep it straight. Keep it easy. Really? Know, yeah. yeah. That, that, that'll be one option. Yeah. <laughs> delish, yeah. yeah. Okay, I like those choices. I mightn't have an appetite, though. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> true. That's true. Okay, Luke, are you ready for the quick fire? Right? I am. The actor you always laugh at. Uh, well, the comedian is Tommy Tiernan. Was, uh, no, see, that's a separate question. Oh, you want to? Oh, sorry, I can make a part. Okay. Uh, the, well, he is an actor as well, though, isn't he? He is, he is, he is, he is. The actor I always laugh at, Michael Caine. Oh, very good. When he's in his comedy roles. Yes. His, his, his timing and his comedic. Skill That's a good point. answer. No, go we haven't him. had that before. Yeah. Uh, the actress you always laugh at. Oh, the actress I always laugh at would have to be Joanna Lumley. Excellent. In Ab Fab, and I'm dating myself <laughs> now. But but isn't that a superb performance? Unreal. Just fantastic. Jeez, these so are great answers. Gets me every time. So comedian Tommy Tiernan. Yeah, Tommy Tiernan. Yeah, definitely. And then finally, Luke, your best or worst joke. My best or worst joke is as follows: Three nuns are in a car crash. Okay. And they go to the pearly gates and St. Peter is there. Oh, sisters, you're very welcome because you've had a good life and all that kind of thing. But just to be sure, I need to ask you some questions to make sure you know what's going on with regard to God and everything. And they say, yes. And then he says to the first nun, what was the name of the first man? And the nun says, Adam, correct. You're in, sister. You're very welcome. Heaven forever for you. And then the second nun, he says, now, what was the name of the first woman? That was Eve. St. Peter. Oh, Eve, that's exactly right. Fantastic. You come in and you're welcome. Now, the third nun is the mother superior. Now, you're, you're a bit more, you know, senior. So I'm going to ask you a tougher question. When Eve met Adam, what was the first thing she said to him? Oh, that's a hard one. You're in. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Luke O'Neill. That was Dawn French. I'll give her credit. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Professor Luke O'Neill, thank you so much for sharing the laughs of your life. Thank you very much. That was great fun. We had a good laugh as well. That's the main thing. <laughs> thank you for listening to the laughs of your life with Professor Luke O'Neill. 
I hope you enjoyed. Gentle reminder that this week's episode is brought to you by Science Week 2020, which is running from November 8th to 15th with hundreds of virtual events taking place online. You can check them out, sfi.ie forward slash events. Lots more brilliant episodes to come this season. So don't forget to like, subscribe, rate, review and all those other things. This podcast is brought to you by Collaborative Studios. (laughs) 